This is Meredith for Real, the Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. Here, we explore the taboo questions people think but don't ask out loud. Questions that need nuanced answers unavailable even to Google. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity within yourself and the world around you. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Today's episode is a question often whispered by other people, but rarely actually investigated. Why do people stay in abusive relationships? I felt strongly that in order to discuss this with the proper amount of perspective, we needed to paint pictures of what abuse can look like and how people end up there. So the first 15 minutes or so cover that, and then we get into the reasons that people don't leave. If you end up liking this episode and, you know, digging Melissa's very calming vibe, You'll also like the one with her about the importance of boundaries and self-care within a relationship. It's all the way back to episode 15. All right, friends, keep it curious. When it's celebrity headlines, they're entertainment. When it's family members, they're infuriating and confusing. When it's our neighbors, they become gossip. What are they? Abusive relationships. One in three women have experienced them, and one in four men. And yet, despite how common they are, we still act as perplexed onlookers when the victim stays, goes back into the arms of an abuser, or leaves one to find another. My next guest is someone who experiences this weekly in her office. She's a licensed mental health counselor in Florida who specializes in assisting women in recovering from trauma and toxic relationships. Today, she's going to explain the intricacies that create the love-hate scenarios that trap people, why not all abuse includes bruises, and how we can actually help and be helped as we ask the question, why do people stay with their abuser? Professional listener, returning guest, the soothing voice of reason, Melissa Garner. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be back. Thanks for having me. Such an important topic. It is an important topic. And I think in order to understand why people stay, we might need to paint a picture of why or how people even like arrive in the abusive relationship. So are there certain types of people that are more vulnerable to abusive relationships than others? For sure. I would say so. And that is that I want to make sure that it's clear it's by no fault of their own. Um, these qualities also make up a very lovely relationship if matched with the right person. Um, but I will say that abusers do look for people that are easier to control in a sense. Um, so they're going to be looking for the, the peacekeepers and the, um, the, the optimists and, uh, the passive communicators, right? The ones that are willing to compromise, which again, are excellent traits if you're in a healthy relationship, but can quickly be taken advantage of by someone who's looking to do that. I heard a, a cult leader quoted on a podcast saying that he always knew who his next victim was because he'd physically like bump into them in the street. And then um, if that person apologized, he was like, oh, that's my next person. Which again, you would think conscientious and polite behavior would be a great thing. And it is. Um, but unfortunately, it, it it can make one vulnerable to someone looking for those very traits to to take advantage of. A lot of people don't realize that they are being abused, and sometimes it's sort of gradual as far as integrating itself into the relationship in the first place. Um, so yeah, some people 
can be surprised to find that what they're going through is is not normal. Well, that's what I was curious about. Because it is gradual, sometimes, like in retrospect, when you hear these things explained, it seems very intentional. It seems very pathological. Are abusers usually systematic in how they choose and implement the the systems of control in a relationship? They sure can be. So not all abusers look the same. I would say that the old adage can ring true that hurt people hurt people. Sometimes that is the result of their own trauma that has not healed and then gets projected uh, onto this other person as a form of feeling powerful, right? Because abuse always comes down to a sense of power and control. And again, there's different reasons people want to feel powerful and control. Um, some of those reasons were because they didn't have any sort of power or control in their own lives growing up, and maybe they were the victim of abuse. And this is how they've learned to cope with it, unfortunately. Other abusers are very calculated, and this is where you're going to see more narcissistic personalities and antisocial personalities and sadists, where the goal is to find someone to hurt for different different rewards. Interesting. Yeah. So the drivers are different. The awareness is different. But sometimes, I don't know, would you say sometimes or always like the method ha- is similar? Because, you know, talking, going back to that analogy of cults, and I've heard abusive relationships described as even like a one-to-one cult. And love bombing, breadcrumbing, trauma bonding, grooming. Have you seen a lot of that in your practice with the women that you work with? Oh, unfortunately, a lot of that. That that really is my specialty. And so I see a lot of it. Um, Yeah, there's different types of abuse out there. And some are very obvious. You would think, you know, physical abuse is a very obvious form of abuse. And that's where you're going to... Perhaps see signs of abuse, bruises, cuts, broken bones, burns, things like that. Um, But some abuse is obviously not very obvious, and that's going to be where you're going to see emotional abuse, psychological abuse, right? Where the goal is to turn oneself against oneself, right? Sort of break down one's own trust and their ability to depend on themselves, right? Or to trust their emotions or how they even think, right? So emotional abuse is meant to use your emotions against you to get what I want. Um, right. So if I can butter you up and make you feel good so that I can have something for me, great. If that's not working, maybe I ramp it up and move on to badgering and hopefully break you down that way. Or maybe a guilt trip will do the trick. And, and then beyond that, it can move into pretty serious types of manipulation, um, threats, temper tantrums, violence, punishment, and retaliation. Right. And then there's other kinds of abuse as well. Sexual abuse, financial abuse, right? relationship abuse, where one is just isolated, right? Away from their friends and family or discouraged not to uh, pursue higher degrees or an education or training, right? Not to work, right? Sometimes abuse and control is under the guise of I want to take care of you. Um, but also along with that, I want to control you. I want to make sure that I'm the only one that can take care of you. I've seen a lot of that of um, just over my years of doing business with women. You know, I, I was in their kitchen. <laughs> we were talking about skincare and makeup and women will disclose a lot when they take off their mascara for some reason. And (laughs) so, uh, yeah, I, there was one lady I met here in Pensacola and she told me that her husband doesn't allow her to make any purchases. And when she goes to the grocery store, when she's at checkout, she has to call him and tell him the total. And then he Mm -hmm. wires it into like a debit card. She was 
you know, a character. And so I kind of took it with a grain of salt. But then one day at Publix, I happened, no lie, I happened to be behind her in line at the checkout and Mm -hmm. I saw it. Hmm. And it's just, it's just wild because I don't think people understand the scope of like financial abuse and what that looks like. And it does masquerade as caretaking like people who have said, oh, he doesn't want me to work. He just wants me to pursue my passions and or stay at home with the kids. And it's like that sentence alone can be quite innocent, but it also can be a sign of financial control. Yes. You know, and and a big giveaway would be as if this person wants to go do something to better themselves, right? So nothing wrong with wanting to stay home with the kids and, and take care of things or be taken care of. It would just matter, of course, at what cost, right? So it, if I'm going to be taken care of, does that mean I have to put up with a lot of abuse? And so if that's the case, then it's obviously not a deal. Um, so, so again, the, the telltale sign of whether this is a controlling and abusive situation is if, if the individual who wants to pursue their individual freedoms is somehow um, criticized, ridiculed, or prevented in some way from doing that very thing then we've got a problem, right? Because we don't want to necessarily blame anybody for wanting to be extra generous. Um, but again, both parties would need to be on board with that and not just one calling the shots. Yeah, there's a lot of subtleties in the dynamics of abusive relationships. Uh, I'm glad that you explained the financial abuse more because it's one that I think doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, but can you kind of explain or define what emotional abuse is, because it's one that can be extremely damaging. As you said earlier, it's like you don't even trust yourself anymore because your judgment has been outsourced for so long that Mm -hmm. you have, you know, just learned to depend on this other person for all of your thoughts for your your critical thinking and in an abusive relationship that's that is systematically done right you can't trust yourself you have to trust me um so again whether that's overtly said or implied through actions um, over over time the message is clear that the abuser knows best and they should be in control the result would be ultimately walking on eggshells, right? Because emotional abuse, it can be screaming, yelling, calling names, ridiculing, constantly criticizing, right? We've got to be open to feedback, but this was this would be constant criticism. Everything you do is wrong. And then we can get into threats and isolation and, and right? So emotional abuse is meant to attack a person's trust in themselves, their self-esteem. Um, and again, that, that it eventually is effective. So I think a lot of people try to not let it get to them. That's uh, sometimes a little barrier. Right? I'm not going to let it get to me or I don't let it bother me or it doesn't hurt anymore, which of course, right, when when something that's meant to be painful it, um, doesn't hurt anymore, it doesn't mean it's not causing harm. It just means that we might be numb to it. Um, so emotional abuse is a very sneaky um, type of abuse, but has incredible and profound effects on a person's self-esteem and their ability to trust themselves, which is, of course, very difficult when it comes to deciding what to do about the relationship itself. Right? The, the gaslighting becomes their own language. I can't really trust myself. I'm too sensitive, right? Um, I need to grow a backbone, right? These are a lot of the, the gaslighting, the minimization thoughts that were fed 
in an abusive relationship where my feelings are, they don't matter or they're, I'm just too sensitive and I need to get over it. Right. As opposed oh. to this is a, this is a problematic environment and I'm not safe. Uh, wow. Those are really good examples. I, I've seen emotional abuse where the compassion is leveraged. So like the person was saying to this woman, uh, he was like disclosing all these personal emotional secrets. You know, he kind of created like a bond that way. Yeah. Like, like I'm so broken and you're the only one that can heal me. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, if you basically don't do what I say, um, I'll, I might hurt myself. Who knows what I'll do? Yes. Who, who knows Absolutely. what would happen to me? And uh, so that's like a real sneaky way that um, I've seen it show up too, because it wasn't in that case as overt as put downs. It was actually putting that that person was putting himself down um, in mm-hmm. order to um, adhere his wife to him. Sort of feigned helplessness, victimization, right, for the purpose of of seeking out that kind of trauma bond. Right? I need I need you to take care of me. Right? I I need someone to keep me in line. Right. You help me be a better person. Right. And so very much that's that's like um, music to some people's ears. Right. I, I want to be helpful. I want to make a difference. Maybe I can love them into changing. And of course, if they're validating that, I need you to love me into changing. Well, then you've got a perfect recipe for this to continue on um, to a pretty destructive level. Yeah. And then they're not incentivized to actually be better because then you'd be like, oh, my, my work here is done. Well, absolutely. And that's how we, a lot of people end up in sort of a the abuse cycle, right? Which can can gradually integrate itself. It can start off very minimally, um, but gradually get worse over time because of both people being involved in that cycle, right? One person to essentially struggle with, let's just say we, we all we all deal with emotion and stress. That's part of being human. Um, but it, let's just say an, um, an abuser may not have a great deal of emotional regulation skills. And so when that abuse uh, shows up in the relationship, whatever kind of abuse that might be, let's just say some sort of an outburst or violent um, action, right? obviously there's going to create some damage, some distrust happens in the relationship. And that's usually we're going to see distance, withdrawal, right? The hurt party is going to withdraw generally, um, or the abuser may hurt and then pull away as well as part of the abuse itself, right? And it's your fault I have to treat you this way, right? So I'm going to now neglect you. Um, to add to that, right? So that in that distance, of course, you know the the I'd say that the uh, the hurt party has generally the most power in these moments, right? Because they are hurt a lot of the time in that distance. Um, sometimes the abuser will eventually come back to close that distance with apologies and eyes are wide open to insight, right? And so suddenly we might get all these grand gestures and some love bombing and I see the light and I'll never do that again. And right, lots of promises. And again, music to someone's ears who really looks forward to change, who only wants things to get better. And then things do get better for a little while. And that's maybe we maybe see that honeymoon period for for some time. This is when maybe some loved ones, family members, friends, they 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 don't understand the reunification during this time. And this is when sometimes the external relationships, such as friends and family, start to get more distant, right? Or feel pushed further back, right? Because it's, you all don't understand what, you know, that I love him and we're, you know, we're working on it and he promised he'd change or he has changed. And, you know, and so again, the, the, the distrust not only affects the relationship itself, but 
people around the relationship as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So things return to routine eventually and the whole cycle repeats itself. I've never thought about the connection between the reunification and the emotional response that happens mm-hmm. with the support people and how mm-hmm. that actually creates more of uh, a gap you know, and more sure. isolation because I've, I've experienced that when I've been a crying shoulder to quite a few women and, and then I help them, you know, and then they go back, they right. go back to the guy that was in one case physically choking them. It's, it's hard not to go, okay, well, fine. You know, and we'll right. talk more about that at the end about how we can support others. So Um, But I want to kind of transition into why we stay or why people stay in abusive relationships. We mentioned like extreme examples, like cults and stuff. I think there's just this temptation to think of abusive relationships like like the Elizabeth Smart case, like, oh, they must be held in a basement somewhere just waiting for the opportunity to get out. But it's Mm. not that cut and dry. Over the years, being trusted with disclosure and not knowing, you know, always how to help. I wanted to get your take on the yeah buts that I've personally heard, and maybe you can expand on them or share other examples that kind of bring this into light. Um, and the first one is a big one. It's a big but. <laughs> it's, okay. okay. Yeah, but he's never hit me. Sure. Absolutely. That's a really common one, right? If I were working with a client, we would we would really take our time with that. So, you know, because I, I wouldn't want to get into a back and forth of trying to convince someone why they need to leave, right? Because that's a quick way to lose lose that person's attention pretty quickly. When it comes down to it, you know, even if you're not being hit, over the years, the women that I've spoken to, um, the people that I've worked with, oftentimes refer to the emotional impact of the abuse as worse, in some cases, than the physical. I can't speak for everybody, of course, in that sense, but uh, but again, a bruise generally heals a lot faster than the self-esteem. So I would say that an emotionally abusive relationship is just as detrimental as a physical one. And really, you can't have one without the other. Even emotional abuse takes a physical toll on a person's body. Another yeah, but I've heard is, mm-hmm. yeah, but we're married, so it's not rape. Mm-hmm. Right. So rape is uh, unwanted sex, right? It's sex against one's consent whether you're awake or asleep or whether you are married or not in a relationship. Sexual abuse is any unwanted touch, right? Even if one has changed their mind, even if one is married, right? So everyone has the right to say no and everyone has the right to what happens to their body, even in Yeah, but if, yes, that's true. Yeah, but if I tell someone, it'll ruin his life. You know, I would just speak to the the fact that that's part of the abuse cycle itself is sort of the protecting the abuser of the negative consequences of their abusive behavior. I would encourage people to let the pieces fall where they may, um, that the abuser will deal with the consequences of their own behavior, um, and that by speaking up or reporting it, that the, the person is taking care of themselves. And you see that a lot in military families because... A report of the abuser has an impact on the abuser's career. And mm-hmm. sometimes because of the nature of being a military family, they're already isolated. And so right. that can create um, 
an added fear component of, you know, of some practical uh, fears. So let's, let's kind of unpack those reasons. Cause I think we're kind of getting into that neighborhood of the, the categories that you want to share, emotional, cultural, and practical. So do you want to start with practical since we're kind of on that topic anyway? So there's practical reasons that people may not leave an abusive relationship or it may be difficult to leave one is just like you said, that reporting, perhaps reporting a spouse may result in that spouse, uh, that spouse's employment being affected, which then affects the household income, which then affects perhaps the kids, the pets, the people involved in the home. It's, it's not always a clean break, as you just pointed out, right? It's, it's an uh, untangling of right, one's enmeshment with this person. So practical reasons can include lack of resources, right? That if you're leaving the abuser and they were the only source of support, such as finances, emotional support, um, companionship, right? Shelter. So that's a big ask to go find those things for oneself when you're already in a state of emotional, emotional turmoil. So just a lack of resources in general to money, shelter, um, child care, support, emotional support, counseling, things like that can be a major factor. It's not having the ability to leave. Um, and sometimes disability is another issue entirely. Um, not just difficulty leaving, but the inability to say somebody who has a, a physical or mental disability puts them even more. Um, in a vulnerable position to be taken advantage of. So obviously that makes it more difficult to leave. Um, practical reasons would also include just the logistics, right? So what does that mean as far as where am I going to go? Um, if there, do, do there need to be any legal proceedings, right? Does this mean some sort of a divorce or a legal separation? Where are the kids going to go if there's kids involved, pets? Right? So it's going to be an overwhelming process to even think about. So that's why I say, you know, when, when working with someone or talking with a, anyone who's in an abusive relationship, one of the best things you can do is help them listen to themselves, ask questions, let them speak, let them hear themselves, um, because that is so important because they haven't been in touch with themselves probably in a while. Yeah, that's major. Um, I never thought of that. Just to let them speak freely, like give them a space to process their thoughts out loud. I yeah. I once met a woman who had some sort of mark on her. I forget what it was, but I asked about it. And she straight up told me that her man abused her. And I was like, and it was within the first 10 minutes of meeting, right? Like I was yeah. thinking, oh, this will be a funny story. This will be a good icebreaker after we shook hands and we're literally like, nice to meet you. And we were in a private space and she must have just felt some kind of way. And she admitted after that, after she said, oh, yeah, well, my my man, I forget how she worded it, but basically beats me. And I said, oh, okay, um, something to the effect of, well, why don't you <laughs> get on out of there? And um, she, she admitted that, well, he pays the bills and takes oh. care of my kids. He never lifts a hand to my kids and pays the bills. And I don't have right. a lot of options because I do have so many little ones and so in your experience with your practice, do you find that people who are facing practical barriers to leaving their abuser are more aware of the abuse than those who are not leaving for the other reasons? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I'd say that if they've reached the point they're considering the practical barriers of leaving, um, then they may have already moved through some of the emotional. I've, I've heard of many, many stories just like that. 
right? That the utility of the relationship in a way offsets the abuse that they're experiencing and to them that's worth it to sort of sacrifice themselves for the stability of perhaps their children or the, the family dynamic. Yeah. Or I think that because, perfectly right. illustrates the cross section of um, psychological and physical abuse. Because mm-hmm. if you recognize the abuse and yet still accept it from a psychological standpoint, that as you said, the utility of it, the payoff, then you are, you know, right where that abuser needs you to be for their mm-hmm. own, you know, benefit. Um, another thought process after people have moved through that emotional piece can sometimes be like the impact on the community. Like you've been gaslit for so long and then you finally realize, oh, this is not right. But then you work through the practical, but then you've got this like, well, what will what will my parents think? Or can you speak to the the cultural nuance of what keeps people in abusive relationships? Absolutely. Right. So if we grew up around abuse and toxicity, we may just think that's that's just normal. That's how relationships work. Right. So, you know, hear that. Right. Where people may normalize, you know, well, you know, we, we scream and we yell and we call each other names. But, you know, that's just what we do in our household. Um, so normalization through family of origin or gradually integrates itself into the relationship itself, sort of like we were talking earlier, maybe just little things in the beginning and, and gradually get worse over time. Society, right? Friend groups, right? Don't want to upset the friend group dynamic. I, I can't tell you how many adults I've spoken to who, and, and, and kids, teens, who have validated, I wish my parents had split up. Oh, Just living really? in that kind of, I wish they had split up, or I wish they had oh, se- wow. separated earlier. Because, of course, leaving and having um, parents who are separated it has its effect, for sure. It's a challenge. It's not the ideal scenario. But staying in an abusive environment and relationship has extremely detrimental effect. So it's not necessarily better for the children just to stay in an abusive environment and relationship. In some ways, it can be more detrimental. Um, I'm so glad that so, you brought that up because I, I know your specialty is working with women. And so, I, I, I you know, we're speaking from the vantage point of what you, you are best at. But I just sure. want to speak really quickly to my male listeners because yeah. um, I feel like there is a double standard in our society of what women will tolerate in a relationship or in what they are encouraged to tolerate or not tolerate and what men are. And I just want the men out there to know that it is not cute when she is crazy. It's not part of her sexiness. It's not okay that she puts a tracker on your phone or calls you a bunch of times or is checking all your, you know, stuff Mm -hmm. or keying your car You know, yeah, maybe the makeup sex is really great afterwards, but just if you're listening out there and you're a guy, I just want you to know that if you leave at a relationship like that, that doesn't make you a bad man, doesn't make you a bad father, doesn't make you, you know, from a broken home. It makes you breaking the, the, the spell of future generations thinking that's okay. So I just wanted to put that out there. 
That is a really good point. And I, I agree, right? We think about abusive relationships, and I, I think a lot of us conjure the right. The image that comes to mind is the male is the abuser of the women. And it absolutely goes both ways, right? Right. And so, yeah, absolutely. The, the control tactics are similar. Um, like you mentioned several tracking, stalking, demanding, right? Checking on everything you're doing, right? It's not okay. So yeah, a healthy relationship. If you don't get your way, like just bursting out into tears instead of having a normal adult conversation, just, mm-hmm. you know, going into a fit of sobbing is, can be very manipulative. And um, I think that there's a lot of, you know, men out there that just put their identity into a fatherhood and being a husband. Like, who am I if I'm not this? Sure. And yeah. that kind of is an example of the end psychological consequence of this mm-hmm. chronic state of rocking on eggshells and, you know, crisis in the home. Right. Because you end up with, sometimes you end up with sort of the abuser and then the, the, the passive one, um, and either gender can be, right? So, and then sometimes you end up with two that uh, use hurt to get their point across. Yeah. Was there anything on in the Department of Culture that you wanted to ex- also bring out, or do you want to move into the emotional reasons? Because I know there's a lot of them. <laughs> A lot to say about emotional reasons. Yeah, I, I think we covered um, cultural. I, you know, I think a big one can also include, of course, spiritual beliefs, religion beliefs. Right? So where essentially everybody else is telling you that you have to stay regardless of what the abuse is um, for whatever reason they think is important. I think one more thing that can cycle into cultural, which sort of segues into the emotional side of it, um, is the sort of sunk cost fallacy, right? Like I've come this far. How could I turn back now? Or how could I leave now? We've gone through so much together. And that's, again, I'm going to speak some to uh, the trauma bond, right? We've been through so many traumas together. That must mean something about us, right? And and so that can almost um, cause a person to want to double down on the loyalty to a, an abusive relationship just because of everything they have come through together. Wow. That is... Yeah, that's major. Do you see that as a reason that people end up marrying their abuser? Like they've dated for a long time, then they get married. And even though, oh, this is your this is your chance to, you know, exit, (laughs) they Mm -hmm. instead lean into it because they've come this far. I could definitely see that in like a religious community. Absolutely. Yeah. I've I've worked with many people who write their abuser, they will both go to their spiritual uh, or places of worship and, um, you know, put on the show and and then go home and and treat each other other terribly. Yeah, that's true. I heard that called the dinner party paradox. Like when you're at the dinner party, you're playing a part and then you get in the car to go home and it's like a switch turns and you become, you know, how you are at home whether that's distant or, you know, argumentative or whatever it is, it's like, it's a different version of yourself, public to private. Absolutely. Right. The mask comes off. And so. Emotional. emotional. Let's un- let's go into that because that's a biggie. Of course. Um, there's a lot that goes into deciding to leave an abusive relationship. 
I'd say one of the first ones that comes to mind is is just an not knowing or simply denial of the abuse, right? Where where we can minimize it, right? We can um minimization or numbing is really a barrier to leaving an abusive relationship, right? So I don't want to feel if I'm in an abusive relationship, so I'm going to numb somehow. I'm going to just turn those feelings off and there's lots of ways to do that. I can right, drugs, alcohol, um shopping, eating, maybe go start my own little affair on the side, right? So all sorts of things can lead to distraction, which again, if we're not looking at the problem, uh, then it may not bother us as much. Can you give an example of that abuse being minimized? Because I think I'm just imagining someone who might be in a, an abusive relationship listening to this because they can't trust their own judgment about their own situation. They might need some, you know, a picture painted that they can paint themselves into paint themselves into and figure out to figure out if that's them or not. I've, I've worked with people where, um, you know, the, well, you know, they call me names, they, they, they call me horrible names and they scream and tell me terrible things about myself and, you know, and they're just smiling and laughing and, and, uh, you know, and tells me, I don't, I don't, it doesn't even bother me anymore. I just expect it at this point. And, um, it, and again, that's danger zone. When we have gone numb to things that should hurt, we're at risk of getting really hurt, right? Because that pain is is a good thing. It's it built into our um, instincts to sort of teach us what to what's dangerous, right? So if again, if that signal has been turned off somehow by either willful, I can just take it, right? I'm tough like that, and almost taking a sense of pride, and I'm not going to let them get to me, but if someone is being abused, rather than leave the relationship, they might find somebody else who makes them feel a little bit better, right? And then, of course, now we have shame and guilt, and now they feel they deserve the abuse they're getting at home. So it's almost fair. Yeah, I mean, that's like positioning yourself so you feel deserving of the situation that you have, removing the yeah. contrast of who you really are and your situation yes. so that your world makes sense. I mean, I don't think you could have explained the complexity of abusive relationships better than just that one example. That's, yeah, that's very eye-opening. I'd say some other emotional reasons. Uh, one of the biggest ones, of course, would be fear. Fear shows up in a lot of ways when thinking about leaving a relationship. Fear of being alone. Fear, again, in an emotional sense and in a practical sense, right? Who's gonna, who am I going to spend time with, talk to? Um, who's going to make me feel less lonely, or who's going to help me take care of these kids, who's going to help me pay these bills, right? Fear of leaving and retaliation, right? So the abuser obviously generally don't like being, they, they don't generally like it when people leave. Uh, so, you know, again, retaliation is a risk. And um, so there's fear of that, fear of how it's going to affect everybody else around them. Yeah, I could see that. Just even the fear of, am I am I capable? Depending on how long that person has been with their abuser, like in the case of grooming, um, you know, I, in researching before our discussion, I was listening to all different kinds of examples because you kind of just don't know what you don't know, right? You know, someone was talking about they were 16 and he was like 18 or 19. And then, you know, supposedly they didn't start dating until she was 18, but she was groomed up until that point. And so he had a huge influence in her own 
um, understanding of who she was as a person. And that dependency was still created in those early years so that when she did, you know, become of age, it was like he, he, you know, customized her to his liking Mm -hmm. and she couldn't have any other way of seeing herself outside of that relationship because it had been so overshadowing for so long. Exactly. And had a part to play in her development, even as far as growing into an adult who she is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything else under uh, emotional? Sure. Yep. I'd say guilt is a major player here. Um, Guilt. I don't. Guilt's a big one. Guilt. Guilt for everything. And again, a lot of caregivers, a lot of the people pleasers, a lot of the ones that like to take care of everybody else. We we tend to be a little predisposed to guilt. Right. We want things to go right. And for whatever reason, if they don't, it's my fault. So. Of course, that excessive sense of responsibility is going to lead someone to feel guilty all the time, whether something's within their responsibility or not. And so guilt can play a major role as far as I'd feel guilty for upsetting this person that's been abusing me. I don't want to upset them. I feel bad for them, right? I don't want to add to their stress, right? So we might have a lot of empathy and um, and love for this person, and which then translates into guilt for upsetting them in some way. Um, obviously, guilt for... If, if there's kids involved, right? And how that's going to affect the children if I leave. Um, so guilt's a really big one. And, and that ties into shame as well, right? So guilt, I don't want to do anything wrong or upset anybody. But and then shame is really a characterization of oneself. Like, I'm a bad person. I'm a failure in some way, right? Or I should have left sooner. I didn't. So this is my, this, this is my lot in life now, right? I've missed the boat. Right? So um, so there could be a oh, lot of shame yeah. and embarrassment, right? Or we've split up, right? And then going from that picture perfect family right, of the, what did you call it? The the dinner, um, the dinner party paradox, <laughs> the dinner party paradox, right? To go from this per- picture perfect to suddenly I'm leaving this person, right? There's a lot of it, um, a lot to fill in there, right? And so you know, I, I know that a person leaving a relationship is going to feel a lot of pressure to explain this to everybody, and and a great deal fear of not being understood by the people around them that what do you mean i thought things were perfect yeah or worse oh you didn't see that coming didn't you see the red flags <laughs> doctor right. i think it's dr right. ramini doctor yeah. something like that she has a youtube channel a lot about narcissism um, but she talks about how she's on an, an anti red flag campaign at the moment and when I heard that, I was like, well, why would you not want to tell people like what the red flags of an abusive relationship are? Like most of the websites that I've been to that are helpful in that way, in fact, have a bullet list of red flags. And she said it was because she feels like it puts too much pressure on the victim to be in charge of all of that. And it just is, is too much pressure. And so after a person leaves, Instead of, oh my God, I can't, you know, instead of the dinner party paradox, there's something opposite, like the, didn't you see the red flag paradox? Like, oh yeah, we knew, you know, like, and how hurtful is that? So these, yeah. the victims of abusive relationships, whether it's emotional, financial, or physical, there's so much aftercare that has to happen. So I'm, I'm so glad that, you right. know, there's people like you out there that understand the scope of it and can um, right. be a resource. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's another fear, as you pointed out, is leaving a relationship that's abusive. Um, and, and someone coming along and saying, well, I told you so, right? 
What took you so long, right? They'd obviously nobody needs that kind of shame when they're trying to make a good decisions for themselves, a very hard decision. So, and then I, I'd say that the, the last thing I'll say on emotions for now um, would be, again, sort of that longing for better, right? I remember the good times. I remember who they were before the abuse began. That's so, so. true. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If you're new here, you may be surprised to know that the beautiful backdrop of my show is not a virtual screen. It's a real place that you can really rent inside of the Pensacola Museum of History. The exhibit space is called Trader John's. It's an old bar in Pensacola whose owner was just as eclectic as this town. And it's perfect for birthdays, work events, award ceremonies, retirement parties, family reunions. So don't pick another boring venue space for your next event. Give the Pensacola Historic Trust your business and make your event super memorable. Learn more at historicpensacola.org. The weather is cooling down here in the southern U.S., and that means it's fire ant season. For those of you not from the south, fire ants are about as pleasant as they sound, and their bites puss up into an itchy red mess that takes forever to heal. I recommend Insect for pest management because I've been using their mosquito service since 2019, and I love that their work is guaranteed. If you're in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give Insect a call. It's E-N-S-E-C dot net. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. Well, let's, let's talk about how to get out. Um, because I heard another statistic about that time frame of getting out can be very uh, dicey and that a very large percentage, I think it was 70% of women who are killed by their abuser, that it is during that time frame of like hmm. leaving the abuser. And right. so I think it's, it's, I say that, you know, not to discourage people from leaving, but right. to have a plan yes. and both a practical and an emotional one. So maybe since we're yes. kind of in the neighborhood of emotions, let's start there. How do you recommend someone who is processing the guilt, shame, identity loss, grieving the what the relationship was? Like that's, they're grieving the death Absolutely. of a relationship, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't think that's something to be ignored. How right. do you suggest someone process that cluster of emotions in order to move into the practical steps that they need to leave safely? Well, I, I'd say first and foremost to, you know, to reach out to someone, right? And if friends and family feel distant uh, because of the isolation, because of the nature of the relationship and how that's caused some, some uh, tension, to seek out counseling, right? That's what we're here for. We're, we're non-biased, right? We're here to help. We're here to sit with you until you work through what you need to do, right? So, you know, and a good counselor is not going to pressure you nor guilt you nor shame you into making a a decision right now, right? So I would say that reaching out to support, I would also encourage someone to, uh, as far as the emotional aspect, to, to work on getting in touch with their emotions. Again, with this kind of a relationship, it's always about the abuser and how do they feel, right? Watching their mood, mitigating their blowups, mitigating the abuse, right? So walking on the eggshells, the, the, the side is always on how do they feel? Like, let's make sure that they're okay or calm. And we lose total sight of, of how do I feel? What do I want? Who am I? 
And so I would say spend some time journaling about those things. Who am I? What do I want? How do I feel? And that can be a painful process. There may be some painful emotions. So what I would also encourage is extra self-care, right? Spending the time, the energy, the resources, whatever it is to take care of your mind and your body. Um, And again, not doing that alone. As far as creating a safety plan, like you mentioned, absolutely. If if the abuser has a propensity for killing, then that is going to be something that's, it's going to be a dangerous time to leave, right? So to really put together a safety plan, um, people can use incognito tabs to search out resources, right? Delete your history, right? Because again, sometimes control and abuse involves stalking what you've been doing, looking at your computer tabs. Um, really great resources to reach out to as far as creating a safety plan would be the hotline.org. And the phone number for the actual hotline for abuse is 800-799-SAFE. But the hotline.org has many resources that someone can find as far as how to create a safety plan, how to get in touch with advocates, how to get in touch with local resources. Um, So yeah, I'd say that the first steps would be in creating that safety plan is figuring out who your your safety team is going to be. Who's on Who should be on the safety team? So it'd be the counselors talk to you. They can speak to victim advocates in the local community. Go to hotline.org and speak to advocates there. Um, so people who are ready and willing to help. That can also include, um, just depending on the area, right? It can include state or government resources, agencies set up for victim advocacy. I have become concerned about um, families that are more and more using God, what is it called? It's the apps. Apple has one built in where you track each the other. The tracking? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Like, and, three, and like Life 360 and... Life 360 and stuff like yeah. that. I'm like, y'all, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> You're doing this. Um, but, you know, it's under the the premise of safety, which in a healthy relationship, I'm sure that's fine. Yes. Um, but, you know... How how can somebody who is in an abusive situation kind of mitigate these tracking devices? If you shut it off, they literally get a notification. And sometimes those these tracking de- tracking apps have been downloaded without the person's knowledge. Or there's a literal. I mean, this is old. This was like ten years ago that one of the local organizations in Pensacola was telling me that. Sometimes there are literal trackers physically magnetized underneath the vehicle of the the person that they're being stalked by. So they had like a service um, where you could bring your car to them and then they would search it and they would search your phone. But but not everyone has that. So how are they supposed to like reduce how much they're being watched without alerting their abuser and potentially escalating the abuse? Right. That, that is the scary part. Um, as far as tracking and things like that, one would, wouldn't know, right, if they're being tracked secretly. Um, so I would probably encourage them as, you know, and again, this is all going to sound super easy and simple, which I realize it's not so simple or easy to some people. Uh, but, right, survival is tough. And so, you know, to do whatever you can, right, whether that's borrow somebody else's phone, if you can get out of the home to go to the library, use their computer, um, drive straight to the police department and ask what kind of services they can offer. So yeah, if if you feel that your stuff, your phone, your car is being tracked to see what you can do to borrow somebody else's or get in 
get in touch with someone else you know, or That's take smart. yourself to a safe space. Yeah. It, Financially, how should they be prepared? Because we talked about financial abuse, which is a major system of control. If, right. if that person is restricting your access to funds, mm-hmm. certainly you can't pay for counseling or put gas in your car or mm-hmm. do anything you are forced to interact with that person in order to survive in a modern world. Yeah, as much as possible to begin putting money away if you have any access to money to start putting that away. And where should they put it? Because like I interviewed one lady that put it in a box of like brand something, oat brand cereal because she said no one likes oat brand cereal. So no one would, and it worked. She would stuff money, actual physical bills in the uh, Raisin Bran, I think it was Raisin Bran, cereal box, and that helped her escape because that was a very severe situation and she had to literally escape from that. So do they need to go get them a Raisin Bran cereal box or open up a a different bank account? Like what's, what's the best move there? Right. I would encourage them to gradually be putting together a little go bag, which, you know, to keep that somewhere where it's not suspected or to be found, right? which, you know, is going to be different for each individual. But uh, yeah, to be creative, make sure that it's not somewhere that's going to be found. And in that go bag would be stashing money away as you come across it little by little, um, as well as legal documents, important documents that you want to make sure you have with you that you can't go without, such as your ID, passport birth certificate, things like that, change of clothes, right? Any medications you need and have all that ready for when, when it's time to go. Um, and then of course, once they have left as soon as possible to go ahead and establish a bank account. Now, if they can do so safely before leaving, I would encourage them to do that. Um, again, it depends on the safety of the situation, but, um, yeah, I'd be careful about opening accounts too, just because those can come in the mail as far as account statements and, and welcome letters, that sort of thing. So oh, to be mindful that's of that. a really good point. And then as far as, cause like you said, cash, we got to have some sort of money to function, to survive. Um, and so I would encourage them to look into local resources, shelters, churches, um, charities, right? They're food banks. They generally are available in different areas. And 211, at least in, I believe, the US, um, if you dial 211, not 911, but 211 is going to connect you with local resources to help with things like help getting you established with healthcare, childcare, shelter, um, and even vo- vocational rehab to help them get back into working and making money. You mentioned documents which is such a good point to have the documents that you need. What about um, creating documents that create some sort of trail of evidence for legal proceedings? Mm-hmm. How, what's the best way for someone to do that? Can you, are you allowed to like legally record phone calls or in-person, you know, confrontations Kind of like, is there a standard operating procedure for for how to make sure that you don't do all this and then just to be shot down by a judge? Because like in the example right. of some of the technological stuff that we were talking about, cyber stalking mm-hmm. is not recognized as a crime in all states, I don't think. Um, mm-hmm. And so there are certain pieces of evidence that you have to have to show like to get a restraining order or 
right. to and to allow you to get custody of the kids because in a yeah. huge power disparity, like say the person is a high-ranking military person, a police officer, an attorney, someone who's mm-hmm. well-connected, and you have been the stay-at-home person for like right. ever, and you are not at all connected to anybody, which was right. apparently by design. You know, that that gap is such a huge disadvantage for the person who's trying to yeah. shore themselves up in order to create a new life. Absolutely. Right. It can be like starting from scratch for sure. Yeah. Except not really because they're starting at a disadvantage now right? with um, with a whole lot of broken heart and uh, and a lot of other logistical issues. So so I can't necessarily speak to the legality as far as whether it's legal or admissible in court. Um, but I would encourage a person to keep as many records as possible, keep text messages, write things down when they happen, take pictures if there's any injuries, right? If there's items that have been broken, right? If you've taken video, keep it, right? Absolutely. If if it's not admissible, it's not admissible, but better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Um, so yeah, I'd say that keeping a record of the abuse is going to be really important. Um, not to say that that's a necessarily a healthy thing to keep in a healthy relationship. Uh, but again, if we're dealing with an abusive relationship and you need to leave it, um, and, and this is going to support your case, then absolutely keep records as soon as possible. If you were to summarize like the top one or two mistakes that people make when trying to leave an abusive relationship, what comes to mind? What have you seen? Like, feel free to give a real example if you have one. I would say it's, you know, it's hard to say, call this a mistake, but I would say that, um, I'd say most people when leaving an, a, an abusive relationship, the stat, the statistics say that most people attempt to leave seven times before officially leaving. So I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I would say that that's a common, that's common, right? So I want to normalize that if, if someone's had a hard time leaving once or twice or three times or six times to not necessarily see that as a failure, right? So, but again, I, I don't want to call that a mistake so much as people trying their best in a relationship, right? It's hard to say what the other person's going to do. I think a lot of people blame themselves. Um, so I'd say that that's, that's a mistake. Don't blame yourself for the mis- abuse ever. Um, you didn't cause it. You can't control it and you can't fix it. Or to, this is something else I've seen where I'm just going to get counseling for the kids, but not myself. And so I'd say another mistake would be to just neglect self-care and assume that this is a fresh start for you. Um, there's going to be some healing that needs to take place. So I'd say it'd be a mistake to to skip that self-care and the healing process that you'll need. Otherwise, yeah, like you I'd... said in the beginning, we we may be set up to go right back into another relationship that's not healthy unless we work on ourselves first. How can we help people who... Are disclosing to us. You know, I shared that I've had <laughs> numerous women, for whatever reason, decide that I was the right person to tell. And I'm sure that I failed them. I mean, I hope not. I hope I helped them a little bit. But I, I you know, I replay these conversations in my mind a lot because yeah. I'm not a mental health professional. I'm just a person <laughs> who has therapist vibes, you know, like a little bit like you mom do. vibes, but not a mom. Therapist vibes, not a therapist. Um, and you know, I'm sh- I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And if if you are someone that people just qu- kind of share their deepest, darkest secret to on the regular, um, I think it'd be helpful to kind of know how to how to how to help them 
at different stages? So I'd say a lot of active listening, a lot of how do you feel about that? What are your thoughts about that? What do you want? Okay, so wait. So you're you're saying we shouldn't be like, girl, oh my gosh. And then like blurt out that, you know, that son of a bitch. I'm going to get him like you're saying don't do that. (laughs) Generally, um, you know, sometimes that can probably be validating. But um, we run the risk if we respond like that, we run the risk of either A and causing them to feel as if they're at fault for this, this, this relationship that this is right. So clearly terrible. And how could they not see it? And we don't want to instill any sort of shame, right? Because these things are not always obvious from the inside. And then the other thing it might do is put them in a position where now they feel like they have to protect and defend this person. And they probably don't want to do that either, especially if they're talking about how they've been hurt by them. Uh, But that can sometimes be a natural reaction to shut down or make you feel better. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't that. Right. Don't worry about me. So yeah, as much as possible um, to, to again, sort of help them connect with how they feel about the whole thing, right? Because they may just be disconnected or numb to numb to it entirely. And if they're not ready to face the the reality that these things are not okay, um, then again, it may it may shut them down entirely. So I'd say that active listening is the best possible thing you can do. Show appropriate responses, right? So we, we don't want to um, have no response, no emotional response at all, of course, um, but nor do we want to normalize or, or have a, a great emotional reaction, like you were saying. It can be really hard to be on the outside and watch someone you love being hurt and having no control or power to change that. Yeah. Of course, you want to well, reach in and wrap them up, but can't yeah. make that decision. Because time moves in like slow motion for those family members because you're looking or that those yeah. friends because you're looking in going, oh, God, if if we could just remove this poisonous person out of yeah. the picture, uh, we would all be better. Right? Yeah. And so it, it's, you know, easier said than done. So if somebody does have a friend or a family member who is clearly abusing, um, is, is the only course of action to be an empathetic listener? Or is there other things that they can do in order to kind of help that person realize, hey, there are, are better options out there? Yes. So active listening is a big one. Um, I would encourage them to go to counseling. If I was, if I was meeting somebody, I would encourage them to talk to somebody, right? So again, which is also going to help them talk um, and hear themselves. I would avoid ultimatums, of course, you know, that it's it's them or me, right? It's them or our friendship, or um, it's them or we're not, we're never going to talk again. Um, now at the same time, right? Because those ultimatums come with the Im- implication that, or the expectation that they end the relationship, right? And of course, if they don't end the relationship, now we're going to have tension and conflict in this relationship, right? You didn't meet my expectations of leaving this person and therefore I'm angry at you now. And now they've got, now, now they've got their abuser and now their best buddy or whoever angry at them for being in this terrible situation. So we, we want to avoid punishing. We want to avoid shaming. Um, now at the same time, I will say for people on the outside, it's natural to feel angry and it's natural to feel hurt and helpless. It's okay to take steps back from time to time too, not as an ultimatum and in a sense of trying to get them to make a decision, but to step back as your own sense of self-care and boundaries, right? To recognize, you know what, this is not something I have control over. It's ultimately not my call 
whether this person stays or leaves this relationship. There's only so much I can listen to as far as the um, the abuse, right? Do you think, um, you know, that it would be appropriate or, I don't know, subtle enough if, like, you had a friend or family member in an abusive relationship to listen to a podcast and you're like, oh, God, this would this would really help them. And maybe it's not overt. Maybe it's like a, a podcast about somebody's story. Like it's a true crime podcast or something. Mm-hmm. Cause like those are very well shared among women, right? Like yeah. I'm I'm not really into true crime, but a lot of people are. And so people will recommend them to me all the time. And I'm like, it's not my bag. I don't want to say I'm sorry. But because that is normal in our society now, and because podcast listening, unless somebody has an invisible tracker of all your movement on your phone podcast listening is anonymous, right? Like Google doesn't have a great rep. Spotify doesn't, but those other apps, they do. So unless like that person has access to your app and can see your listening history, like it's it's anonymous. It's not going into a browser or something. Um, So like, would that be, would that push them away? Or do you think that might help because it's an outside story coming in that that person can kind of relate to? in a scary way and go, oh my God, this is opening my eyes. Or am I just in fantasy land <laughs> that that podcast will save the world? Well, let, you know, let's hope. Nothing wrong with reaching for the stars. I mean, it depends on the situation. I think that sending information, sending podcasts, videos, articles, the hotline.org, resources, right, all can be really helpful. Um, you just want to sort of also keep in mind the the rapport, right? So are we bombarding them and putting a ton of pressure to make a decision right now? Too much pressure. We can we can sometimes push them right into the the arms of the abuser even further. Before yeah. we share our final resources and wrap up, is there any other thoughts that you want to get out there? I would encourage whoever's dealing with an abusive relationship to Start paying attention to themselves, right? And there's nothing selfish about self-care, right? There's selfless, there's selfish, and then there's self-care, right? Where if I'm selfless, I don't matter. And if I'm selfish, nobody else matters, just me. But in self-care, everyone matters, right? And I am responsible for me, and I'm not responsible for anybody else. But if I can take care of me, I can function the best in my relationships. And when leaving or going through a really tough adjustment, you can have a plan. It can feel overwhelming. Um, so I just encourage them to focus on one breath at a time. If it ever just feels like too much, just make it to the next breath and then the next one. That's awesome. So hotline.org. The hotline. 211. The hotline.org. Yeah. Oh, the hotline.org. Yeah. 211. Is loveandrespect.org. Is that for teenagers or is that for, because they have like a quiz that you can take. Is my relationship healthy? Or they used to anyway. Yeah, loveisrespect.org, I believe is tied in and it's, I believe, made sort of tuned for young adults, love is respect. Um, but the hotline.org, there's a lot of overlap and they have really great information resources. I do believe they still have those quizzes. And then the phone number, if you want someone just to talk to or to develop, to develop a safety plan together, the 800-799-SAFE. For people who are in the state of Florida, you conduct um, virtual counseling appointments. Yeah. Um, are you taking clients? How does that work? Yes. 
So I am licensed as a mental health counselor here in Florida, and I do virtual sessions only at this point. And I'm working with primarily women at this point. Main specialties include depression, anxiety, trauma, uh, abusive relationships or coming out of abusive environments, um, and then different forms of anxiety, different anxiety disorders as well. PTSD, phobias, OCD, things like that. And I do take insurance. Um, right now I am taking TRICARE, United Healthcare, Aetna, and Cigna. I'm hoping to add on to that in the coming year. Um, so yeah, if anybody's interested in working with me, um, they're welcome to reach out to me. They would submit a application to my website. It's www.self-haven. So it's got a little hyphen in the middle, self-haven.com slash private dash session. Jen and I'll reach out and we'll go from there. Um, thank you. This was awesome. This was a lot of fun and such a great topic. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode and were feeling Melissa's calming vibe, you'll also like the one with her about the importance of boundaries and self-care within a relationship. It's all the way back to episode 15. Stay tuned next week for a conversation-style discussion with the son of Phenomenon Experiencer and previous guest, Chris Bledsoe. It's Ryan Bledsoe, and we discuss the intersection of being Pentecostal and a UFO believer. 